Hello, my name is James Campbell. I'm the investigations editor with The Herald Sun. We've got a new podcast called The Herald Sun Coronavirus Update to help you get through these challenging times. Every morning from Monday to Friday, I'll be talking to experts from around the globe and here in Australia on the latest from the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll take a look at the analysis, views, and get you educated and informed for your day ahead. Search for Herald Sun Coronavirus Update wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a follow, subscribe, and let us know what you think in the review section. Who was the killer that changed Australia? No other crime quite grabbed Australia's attention like the one we simply call the Beaumont children. No one knows for sure, apart from the person that abducted them, if he is still alive. You can guarantee it was a male. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. This week, we're going to look at the story of Australia's greatest ever abduction murder mystery. We call it the Beaumont Children. It happened when I was just old enough to read the papers and hear the news. No one who was alive in the 1960s will ever forget it. Jim Beaumont is now 94. He's an old man living with his nightmares in a nursing home in Adelaide. His ex-wife Nancy died last spring after waiting 53 years for news that never came. Before that, this poor woman woke up every day for about 20,000 days to face the nightmare of knowing that their three children vanished from a crowded beach in Adelaide on Australia Day 1966. This is what happened. Australia Day was a very hot day and as happens around Australia on hot days, people flock to beaches. At 10 o'clock that morning, the three Beaumont children caught a bus a few blocks to Glenelg Beach, which was only really uh, the next suburb along from where they lived in Somerton with their parents, Jim and Nancy. The three kids were Jane, who was nine, Anna, who was seven, and their little brother, Grant, who was four. Jane was a responsible girl, quite uh, mature for her years, and she had a few small coins to buy, you know, an ice cream or something. They were supposed to catch the midday bus home after a couple of hours on the beach, but they didn't make it. Their parents never saw them again. So what happened? Well, the truth is no one knows for sure apart from the person that abducted them if he is still alive. You can guarantee it was a male, probably. At about 11am that day, three children matching the Beaumont's descriptions were seen with a man later described as thin-faced, blonde and young. Now, what young means exactly is hard to know at this distance. Perhaps a thin, fit man wearing a pair of bathers at a glance might be any age between late teens and late 30s. Witnesses, and that means most of us, including me, are notoriously bad at details, unless they know they have to remember something. 
But there's a clue that something sinister was afoot because a shopkeeper right near the beach clearly remembered later that Jane or a girl looking like Jane had come in and bought some cakes or pies or whatever and that she had produced a one-pound note to buy this food. Now, a one-pound note to the average child in 1966 was like a kid having a $50 note now. Most kids nine years old do not have one. And Jane had left home most certainly only with a few coins that morning, sixpences and shillings. So it is clear that someone, some adult, had given her the pound note. And that, I think, is a most sinister detail because whoever gave a child a one-pound note, a stranger, was up to no good. As far as anybody knows, no one else saw the children after that, after the shopping. Now, there's a local postman who later said he thought he saw the children at three o'clock that afternoon walking along the street holding hands. But, of course, that might be wrong. He might have seen some other children who were holding hands because the beach that day was crammed full of kids and uh, it would be very easy for a helpful witness to report seeing somebody else who looked a little like the wanted children. We'll never know for sure. It's possible the postman saw the right kids but not at three o'clock, that he saw them earlier and somehow mixed it up. It's, it's hard to know. There have, of course, since those days been other abductions and other murders, each as terrible as the next for the families left behind, the ones grieving, the loved ones. But no other crime quite grabbed Australia's attention like the one we simply call the Beaumont children. It's our version of the Moors murders in England which happened around the same time, except that the Moors murders were solved fairly quickly and the bodies of the children were found and the killers, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, were locked up for life. This century, you could compare the Beaumont children with the disappearance of Madeleine McCann in Portugal in 2007. There's one difference. There were three Beaumont children, not one. When a child vanishes, it is the worst possible torment for parents. The most heartbreaking stories I've covered in 40 years, I think, have been to talk to the parents, but especially the mothers, of the disappeared, because they hope that somewhere their child is alive when in fact part of them knows that they're probably dead. And that is a dreadful thing because they don't know how they died. They don't know the full horror of it. And until they find the bodies or the remains, they can't really have any sort of relief. To lose all your children is beyond belief. It's loss on a scale that we, in a country like Australia, can only associate with genocide and death camps in wartime, we can't associate it. 
with a suburban Australian beach in daylight on a warm and pleasant day. Let's go back to 1966 and compare it with now and work out why it is that someone was able to get away with such a thing in those days in a way they probably couldn't now. 1966 was the start of the modern era. Decimal currency was already lying in banks, minted, ready to distribute on February the 14th, less than three weeks later. So Australia was right on the cusp of joining the big, bold, modern world with decimal currency and rock and roll and, you know, car dealerships on every corner, the whole new world that, that really we inherited. But in other ways, the 1960s was a very different place and it's hard for anyone born since then to imagine a world with no credit cards, no computers, no security cameras, no mobile telephones and only the most primitive recording equipment. None of the things, in fact, that make it nearly impossible to move around without leaving an electronic trail. It was the era of the space race. There were spaceships orbiting the Earth and humans were not far off putting man on the moon. But down here on Earth, it was quite basic. There was one technological advance that made life easier for wrongdoers, and this was cars. Cars were scarce after the war, still scarce in the 1950s, but by 1966, they were becoming plentiful and affordable. The streets were full of Holdens and Falcons. And anyone who had one could move across a city or a state or the entire country almost as easily as we can today, but without being automatically recorded along the way. There were no cameras, no credit cards, none of the stuff that we take for granted now. So whoever lured Jane, Arna and Grant Beaumont from Glenelg Beach that day faced nothing more than the prospect that a few random eyewitnesses might or might not have noticed them for a few minutes. In 1966, the odds were that an unknown offender not actually caught in the act could get away with murder, probably by using a car with bodies in the boot. In the Beaumont case, the abductor and murderer has got away with it for half a century, in fact 54 years. It was probably the crime that did most to change Australians' perception of their children's safety. We went that summer from a casual and carefree society in which most kids played unsupervised to a nasty, grim new world where parents were frightened that their kids would be harmed. It was really the end of a sort of innocence. And although people often talk about not locking doors back in the good old days, I think a lot of doors were locked after 1966. It leaves us with the question... Who was the Beaumont killer? Who was the killer 
that changed Australia. Every big anniversary of this case has thrown up a supposed new lead. Mostly, it's just the latest of the many supposed tips given to the police over the years. So far, they've just been another dead end to add to a long list of dead ends. These supposed leads have come from the mentally ill, from cruel hoaxes and from sincere, well-meaning people. They've all had one thing in common. Not one of them has been useful. Police forces in those days were not equipped for long forensic investigations. The reality was that most missing children usually came home in a few hours or next day. And so homicide detectives or major crime detectives were rarely called in immediately. The other thing was it was Australia Day, which meant that in sleepy Adelaide, half the police force that was on duty, which was probably a skeleton crew, had been at boozy barbecues. That included the police artist. There was one police artist that was around and the police artist revealed years later that he'd been at a barbecue and was called back to work later that night to draw up an artist's impression of the thin-faced blonde young man who'd been seen at the beach with three children that people thought were the Beaumont children. The artist's impression looked like an alien, like E.T. It had a bulbous head, very hollow cheeks, and was extremely unlifelike. The reason was the artist was drunk when he did it. It was a bad start to an investigation that promised so many breakthroughs over the decades, but never actually delivered a real one. And from the beginning, there were stunts that made headlines, but no headway. The first was the arrival of a celebrity corrupt cop from Sydney, of course, called Ray Kelly, known as Gunner Kelly. He was flown from Sydney, mostly by a Sydney newspaper, mainly to create a sensation. And Kelly, the Roger Rogerson of the time, known for uh, shooting crims on the job, posed for photographs, tossed off a few credible quotes and flew home. Job done. It was a circus. The same thing not long later when a Dutch clairvoyant, a man called Gerard Crusay, led investigators and reporters all around Adelaide before predicting, by looking at a crystal ball or tea leaves or whatever, predicting that the children's bodies would be found under a new building that was being built back when the children had vanished. Of course, this thrust attention on any buildings that had been built and a public subscription was taken up for concrete to be dug up at such a building. Nothing was found. And decades later, when the building was demolished, the entire site was dug over. Still nothing was found. The police, meanwhile, plodded on, fielding letters and calls and checking sightings of the children all over Australia and further. There was even one 
in Dunedin in New Zealand where somebody thought that the kids in the house next door looked like the missing children from Australia. Of course, it wasn't them. And each lead gave Jim and Nancy Beaumont false hope, only to have that hope dashed again and again and again. For years, Nancy insisted that they stay on at the now haunted house in Somerton in case her kids came home. Like all parents in these situations, they wanted to stay there in case the kids just walked around the corner and put their lives back together. You can't blame them for that. Probably no one except the killer, if he's still alive, knows who did it. Nancy's dead. The odds against the case being solved before Jim Beaumont dies are a million to one. The killer is either an unknown unknown, some secret psychopath who's never come to police attention, or perhaps a known unknown, one of a few viable suspects linked to the crime by flimsy circumstantial evidence, hearsay, and the fact that they have committed other terrible crimes against children or young people. Next time we meet on Life and Crimes, we're going to run through the short list of suspects, starting with a man with a name that makes him sound like a villain from a B-grade horror movie. That name is Bevan Spencer von Einem. Thanks for listening. Please comment or rate it on whatever platform you're using. And if you haven't done it already, please subscribe. Hi, this is Jen Kelly, the host of In Black and White, a podcast about some of Australia's forgotten characters. Australia's history is littered with 'er ne'er-do-wells, scallywags and flat-out bad guys. So if you're interested in hearing about some of the darker characters from our past, download the show now. That's In Black and White, available wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.